This is episode 43 of Off Script with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Ross Allen, owner of Two Hawk Winery in Medford. Thanks, Trish. Hi. Appreciate being here. Yeah, thanks for being here, Ross. Um, you were on my list. You've been on my list for a while. You know this. Yes. We just, you're really busy, and so it's it was hard to kind of get you here, but I sure. got you here on this Tuesday morning from uh, from Two Hawk. We're going to talk a lot about Two Hawk, especially um, when you guys took it over, because it's been Two Hawk since the birth. Oh, yeah. It's A lot has changed. Yeah, kind of a rebirth certainly has been uh, taking place. A rebirth, for sure. Okay, um, let's start off with where are you from originally? I'm originally from Coalinga, California, which mm-hmm. is a little farming community in western Fresno County. Um, we'd never big farming. Had, a well, lot. Yeah, big, 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 big farming area, big cattle area and that type of thing. But, I mean, you know, thousands of acres of various crops and all that. Okay, and so your family deep into farming. Yeah, my, my grandfather came out of Texas in 1924, or actually earlier than that, and then mm-hmm. in, in 24 started farming in the Kalinga area, and so I'm actually third generation uh, down there. That's so cool. Did you grow up with siblings? I do. I have an older brother who's eight years older than me and mm-hmm. a sister that's 10 years older than I am. Oh, you're the baby. I am the baby, and I, I came around a little bit later than everybody else did. <laughs> That actually explains a lot about you, Ross, that you're the baby. And that probably explains why we get along so well, because I'm the baby. Yeah. And I think, well, being that so much younger than your other siblings, I mean, mm-hmm. I was kind of raised more by my sister than mm-hmm. my mom. And, and you have all that dynamic that takes place as well. Okay. What did you guys farm? Um, cotton, um, melons, safflower, um, Cereal grains, so we did barley and wheat, mm-hmm. um, alfalfa, alfalfa seed, um, and and then later on, I when I was out on my own, I got into doing garlic, garlic seed, onion, onion seed, organic carrots, wow. sugar beets, garbanzo beans, almonds. Did you ever do almonds? Uh, then after that, then okay. we moved into almonds and pistachios, and I still mm-hmm. do a little bit of almonds and pistachios down there now. Mm. Uh, Chuck makes fun of me because I can't say pistachios right. <laughs> He'll, he'll laugh at that because he's like, wait, what are they called? And I'm like, pistachios. He's like, there's no S in front of the P. <laughs> yeah, you got to start with Spistac- P. Right, exactly. So did you, growing up, was this like farming is what you will do, Ross, when you grow up? I don't know if I had any family direction, but I, I think from a very young age, I kind of inherited the passion mm-hmm. and and being able to spend time in the field. And as I got a little bit older and had an opportunity to kind of explore uh, other areas and bigger cities and that type of thing, I figured out pretty quickly that, you know, big city life really wasn't my thing. Really? Yeah. Um, and Fresno is, mi- we're talking middle of the state. Yeah. Fre- California. Yeah. yeah. That's about an hour away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Fresno Clovis area now is over a million people, so wow. it's a pretty major metropolitan area. And a huge, huge farming area for California and for the entire country. Well, yeah, I mean uh, Fresno and uh, Tulare County, Kings County, uh, they go back and forth as far as the number one ag-producing county in the United States. Mm-hmm. And Fresno County, ninety-nine percent of the time, is that county year in and year out. Okay, I told this story to you. We were driving to. Uh, Long Beach to visit Chuck's sister and we were driving through Fresno and there was a certain part I think it was outside of Fresno but I don't remember exactly where we were Um, a a very lovely smell (laughs) yes um, where we were just you know in the car going what is that and it lasted for a couple of miles yeah that's on I-5 and actually that's oh probably 
10 miles away from where I grew up. Really? Yeah. And, and we never, because we were to the south, we ne- really never got that wonderful odor. But, uh, yeah, that's the Harris Ranch feedlot. The feedlot. And, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I don't remember how many head of cattle they have there mm-hmm. on a regular basis, but it's pretty substantial. It's It stings the nostrils. It, it does as you're passing by. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> a few cows. And I just, I'm thinking about the people who live there and live, but they, they're used to it, right? Well, yeah, and, 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 and that's far enough away from where most people live that it's, okay. an, it's not really an issue unless you just happen to be passing by I-5 with your window down. <laughs> Man, it's bad. <laughs> did you guys ever do cattle growing up too? We did. Okay. Yeah, but just on a small basis though. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, you know, it, I think the most we ever had at one time was maybe 50 or 60 heads, something like that. Was that really just for you guys or for neighbors or, I mean, because this was for con- consumption. Yeah, I mean, we, we did it and we, it was just kind of a cow-calf operation of where we'd have the calves raise them up to a certain weight and then sell them. And uh, we did that for quite a bit. And then we got, we sold all of our cows and ended up just leasing out the pastures to the neighbors to, so they could run their cows on that. Okay. So, I mean, you really are from, from the day you were born to even right now, you have been for the most part, just a farmer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and very much so. I mean, with real crops and trees and cattle. And I mean, I was horseback probably for the first time when I was like seven. Oh, man. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And farming is one of those, you and I have had this discussion before, um, it's, it can get ugly. Oh, it can. I mean, it's, you know, my dad told me uh, a long time ago when I was young and kind of striking out on my own in the farming career path, is he told me, he says, son, always remember, farming's the only gambling legal in all 50 states. Mm. And it is. And so, I mean, there's, there's ups and downs. It's not a, it is certainly not an easy thing to do. Right. And we've seen stories, you know, just from Mother Nature where entire crops or even cattle just completely wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Mother Nature plays a a large role in your success year in and year out. Mm -hmm. And is that why California is so popular? Because the the climate's fairly mild? Yeah, I I think growing, you know, for from an ag standpoint, growing conditions for the various crops that we can do uh, and uh, the the different crops that you can do in California because of the weather because I mean you can do everything from you know it's like I said I mean you can do garlic you can do strawberries you can do artichokes you could just depending on where you are in California I mean you can pretty much grow anything you want okay so you grow up is dad still around no no my dad passed in 2006 okay um was that tough uh, it was, yeah. That was, Sounds like that, you guys were really close. Yeah, I mean, I was probably closer to my dad than my my siblings were and that type of thing. And, and yeah, he uh, um, kind of had a long battle with lots of health-related issues mm-hmm. and that type of thing. And then finally went, passed in, in 06. Okay. Um, was that something for you when he passed? Was it... Uh, where were you at the time in 2006? Uh, 2006, I was still down in in the Kling area um, okay. and primarily farming trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, was still doing a little bit of cereal grain during the winter time, so we'd do a little bit of winter wheat and and uh, you know if it was going to rain, that was kind of always the roll of the dice. Okay, because it see it sounds like this third generation farmer that you are, it's it's kind of ending with you. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, because, you know, my, my kids don't have an interest in it, and I've kind of actually tried to steer them away from it as much as possible, really? just because of the financial risk and, 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 and how the world's changing. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, a lot of food comes from out of the country now, and I don't, I don't think that's right, but, 
you know. I was going to ask, what do you think about that, Ross? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about food coming out from out of the country? Well, and I, I think, you know, the problem is, is your major metropolitan areas, I mean, it, they've lost touch with where their food sources come from, except for the grocery store, because they go to the grocery and they have everything there that they ever want. And they don't really put much thought or much weight into exactly where that comes from. Mm -hmm. You and I share an absolute love, not only for uh, food, but cooking too. Yes. And it's one of those things, um, you know, I have a friend who says, she's like, I I don't understand people who view food as fuel. Like, it's something that should be celebrated. Oh, yeah, yeah I, exactly right. And I mean, I think, you know, and uh, my my dad was kind of a foodie guy, and my mom, uh, she's still around and excellent, was an excellent cook when she was still doing a lot of cooking and that type of thing. And so I just grew up around that environment of, you know, everybody, you know, barbecued, everybody cooked, and, and you, you know, you, you get a passion for food that way, too. I agree. Were dinners a big deal for you guys and your family? Yeah, I mean, mom did the sides and dad manned the grill. You know, that's growing up on the ranch. That was pretty much the the standard Mm -hmm. protocol. When we would visit my grandparents, this tiny little town in South Carolina, uh, we would grill ribeyes. And it was so bizarre to me, the thinnest ribeyes you've ever seen, which now I know for you and I, that's like (laughs) stupid. (laughs) The thicker, the better. Um, But these thin ribeyes that were grilled perfectly by my grandpa every single time, Mm -hmm. we would have you know, iceberg lettuce with ranch dressing and just baked potatoes with all of the goods. Yep. And that was like the perfect Saturday night dinner. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we had some very similar, right? you know, my, um, I remember my granddad, he didn't, I mean, it had an open fire, so it was wood that he always mm. cooked with. And so he'd, the fire would be, you know, raging by the time we came over for dinner, and then he'd throw steaks on, and you'd have the same thing, potatoes, salad, yeah. um, or my grandmother was from Oklahoma, and so it might be green beans and bacon or something like that, so. Mm. You miss that? I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same here. I miss that just old way and not that I'm going to do it. I'm not going to build a fire pit in my backyard and, you know, throw half a hog on there, but I mean that's how we that's how I grew up in South Carolina. Yeah. That's just how you did things. Yep. Interesting. So, you're growing almonds um among other things and this is around 2006. Mm-hmm. How did you get into the law enforcement side of your life? That goes way back to when I was in high school. Oh, okay. And back in the mid-80s, my mom and dad had separated. My dad moved to the Bay Area. Um, Being a cantankerous young soul, uh, my mom and I... I know, I know. It's shocking. My mom and I didn't really get along, and so I moved to the Bay Area to live with my dad. And shortly thereafter, I met a, a... another guy in high school and his dad worked for a police department and that led into being part of the explorer program at that police department Mm -hmm. and i got into that and then i worked retail security when i was going to college and came out of that and went back to school and uh, what was the sorry what was the the, explorer program was that just like an internship well it's yeah the explorer program is actually a branch of the scouts of the boy scouts oh really it is and and so they have it it's called the explorer scout program Mm -hmm. and they have that for law enforcement agencies and they do it with a few other different things and basically i mean you you kind of tip your toe into that career path and so you have a uniform and you do ride-alongs and you participate on a peripheral level you know for security at events Mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, almost along the lines of what a community service officer does as well and so that's 
and it's a pretty cool deal. You were like a scout. I was. That's yeah. so cute. <laughs> That's so cute. So you started doing, you said security, retail security? I did retail security when I was going to college. Yeah. Awesome. What was yeah. that like? Well, it was pretty awesome because I started at Ross Dress for Less. <laughs> Oh, you did it. Yes, I did. Ross worked at Ross? Yes, Ross worked at Ross. And, and uh, back in those days, you uh, chased shoplifters out of the store and tackled yes. them in the parking lot and, and all of that. And That's a little bit of a, an adrenaline rush. It was, it was pretty interesting. I mean, I had people pull scissors on me and had a, had a gal that had a weighted tape dispenser that she had sewn into the bottom of her bag to use as a, basically as like a club, high-velocity club. Um, to That's thinking try and get outside away. the box. <laughs> oh, it was. Yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty interesting. So. Oh man. Um. So you and th- you're what like twenty? Yeah. 21? Or yeah. Even yeah. Because I, I got into that. I mean, I was you know eighteen. I think when man. when I started all that. And you're chasing shoplifters out of Ross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Did you work in any other retail stores? I yeah. I worked in after that. I went to Emporium Capwell, which was a big uh, Bay Area brand, very similar to Macy's, very high end, and that store. I worked in was uh, had about 350 employees that had a bar and a restaurant built mm. into it. It was like a community. Okay, so where does this path lead you then? Well, I, you know, I'm still going to college mm-hmm. for ag, my my farming career, and but I'm um, I'm doing kind of a law enforcement track as well. And uh, then I went back in '88. I went back to the ranch to go to work for the family and. Um, really missed kind of that law enforcement aspect. And so I went back to the community college to finish off what I needed to do for law enforcement. Hmm. And then in 1990, I started with uh, Fresno County Sheriff's Office as a reserve deputy. And um, so I'd farm during the day and chase bad guys at night. Wow. You really, at this point in your life, you have these two loves. Yep. Farming and chasing bad guys. Pretty much. So that's a lot on your plate. It is. Did, yeah. you get, did you sleep? Not much. <laughs> N- not much. <laughs> when are we talking? What year is this? Uh, 1990. Okay. And you're how old? Um, 51 going Sorry, on 52. Oh. Yeah. So. Um, no, no, no. It's, I just, I like to get kind yeah. of an idea of where you are. So you're a 50 year old who is farming during the day and you're chasing bad guys at night. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, back then was, you know, I was, let me see, I, I would have been like 22, okay. I think. When, right. I, when I gotcha. that all started. Okay. So and you just, but you're still doing, you're still, you were still in law enforcement at this time. Yeah. Okay. Y- yeah. I mean, because I, and I did that, I did that. I was with Fresno County Sheriff's Office through 1996. Wow. And then by then I had a couple of little kids that I didn't see much of. Mm-hmm. And so I backed out of that to be able to spend more time with them. And I still kept my toe on the pond though, and uh, did uh, firearms instruction and training, kind of worked on the training side. And I did that for quite a while. Because you really, really loved oh, yeah. this job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, over the years, I mean, obviously, politics have come into play tremendously. Sure. But back then, I mean, it was it was a very powerful sense uh, uh, that you're doing something very positive for the community. Nice. And you're making change. And you can see change. I mean, you, you would you know, enforce an area that might have a, you know, a drug problem or something like that. And you reduce that of where people are safe to walk around at night and again, and that type of thing. It was very rewarding. And so talk to me a little bit then where, because you are still kind of doing both. I mean, even after you 
back out a little bit because you have kids. Yep. Eventually you get back into. I do. Yeah. I, I go back in full throttle. And what happened there is uh, um, a friend of mine um, who I was a chief for various departments that I knew um, basically went into a community that had a, a police department problem and uh, fired everybody. Mm. <laughs> and rehired new people across the board. Wow. It, it was kind of like the walking tall thing. <laughs> and um, I, he was one that he gave me a call and said, hey, you know, we need a range master. We need this. We need that. And I oh. said, okay, well, I'll do that for you. And uh, it, it was very shortly thereafter, he pulled a badge out of his drawer of his desk and set it down in front of me and said, that could be yours if you pick it up. And I didn't that day. Mm -hmm. And I pondered and then... It was probably the day after that I came back and we had the same conversation over again. And that time I picked it up and I went back in and, and started going back to work at nights. Wow. And what was your position? Um, I was I came back in as a, as a corporal. So it'd okay. be kind of an elevated patrol level and field training officer, uh, shift supervisor. Okay. So you're working nights. Yep. Was that a shift you wanted to work, or that's just what was available? Primarily. I mean, I'd rather work nights than days. Really? And, yeah, because that's when you actually get to do stuff. The you action. Know? Yeah, I mean, days are, you know, traffic and, you know, school resource stuff. Snooze and, fest. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Okay, so um, you eventually, I mean, you're full throttle yep. in this law enforcement side, and then it even gets bigger than... It, it does. Yeah. That. Yeah. I, I was, I had got back into it and then I had an opportunity to basically be loaned from my department to California Department of Justice um, mm -hmm. for um, uh, a program that they had that w dealt with um, primarily Mexican Asian drug cartel producing marijuana in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to go to DOJ. And we're talking about illegal pot grows. Correct. Yeah, major. I mean, and these things were funded by by drug cartel because it's easier for them to send people across the border to grow it. And at back then, mm -hmm. to send people across the border to grow it in California to produce it than it was trying to smuggle it across the border. Right. And I remember too, just being on the news side of things a decade or ago or more. Yep. This was huge news. Oh, we, it was. We would go out with some of these law enforcement agencies and go looking for pot grows. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I worked with, uh, there was about eight of us on our team, and we had, we had a helicopter, uh, I mean, we had National Guard guys that were our riggers and that type of thing, because we all flew on the rope, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, it was a major production. So tell me, you're at this point, you're essentially contracted out to yep. help out to do these missions. Yep. What do they look like? Like, walk me through a typical mission is it crack of dawn is it before then well i mean it's uh you go on the road and i mean i and they had various teams throughout the state um i was in the emerald triangle and so i worked uh sonoma mendocino humboldt and del Norte counties is that considered the emerald triangle yeah you get a little closer to humboldt and then you have the emerald triangle humboldt and is and i'm interrupting you humboldt is um it's like weed capital oh yeah yeah i mean in big time weed capital i mean that because they started growing there back in the 60s and, yeah. and, and when, like when we were there, we really didn't have much interest in the little local guys doing their thing. I mean, yes, at the time it was illegal and yes, could we have done something, but that really wasn't our mission. Our mission was to try and shut down the drug cartel guys that were producing copious amounts of weed and then shipping it out of state or shipping it down into the Bay Area into the school systems. Mm. 
Okay, that is good work. So again, sorry, um, yep. you're working with other agencies across the state to mm-hmm. go look for these grows. Yep. And so um, basically, I mean, you'd, you'd get up in the morning early and, you know, grab a bite of breakfast. You'd go to a briefing. From the briefing, you'd drive to a landing zone that they had predetermined. Um, and then you'd gear up. The helicopter would come in. National Guard to rig it up with the rope, and uh, you'd clip on, and off you went. Okay, clip on meaning you're clipped onto the rope. Yep. You're dangling. Yeah. From a helicopter. Yeah, hundred. We had a hundred foot rope, hundred fifty foot rope, and two hundred foot rope, depending on the pe- the canopy we had to penetrate. A lot of people would look at that and go, "That's awesome." And then a lot of people would look at that and go, you're nuts. It's pretty. It's a pretty unique experience to get drugged behind a helicopter through the air. And uh, I, we all wore GPS units and that type of thing so we could, you know, have, be able to notate, you know, where mm-hmm. we were. And it has a speed function on it as well. And so the fastest recorded that I've ever had on my GPS getting drugged through the air was 148 miles an hour. Oh, my Lord. So that's kind of one of those deals when you look over your shoulder, the helicopter's out in front of you. And you're actually being, you're behind the helicopter a ways. No, thanks. (laughs) That's a butt clench, me in my pants moment. Uh, What's the significance about dangling from the helicopter? I mean, what was your job? Well, because a lot of these, these cartel grows, that we dealt with were in very, very isolated areas of the national forest and, you know, BLM, you know, either state property, federal property. Um, and they were extremely remote. I mean, these guys would literally hike in, you know, six to eight hours with propane cans on their back and, and that type of thing to, to set up these, these camps in order to do that. And so the access that we had was by air. And so we would, we, they would recon, spot these grows and then we'd deploy out and uh, go in and see if we'd you know be able to find the guys there and then destroy the crop well and from my knowledge too these aren't friendly people who are growing no no most of these guys that we dealt with i mean you know some of them you know were armed and but for the most part you know they at they didn't realize or they did realize that you know, it probably really wouldn't be a good idea to try and take on a whole group of people out in the woods. Right. And you guys would go in, you would get dropped in there, mm-hmm. and then the whole effort was to destroy these plants. Yeah. Yeah. We'd, I mean, you'd, you'd go in, you'd, you know, you'd check, you know, if, if there's if you, there's people to catch, you get that done. Okay. And then um, we had to kind of clear the area, too, because there's a lot of booby traps. And so there would be... Like what? There, I mean, like the whole pits with stakes in them uh, on a small scale, they would have fishing line um, attached uh, kind of as trip wires, but with like fish hooks at like face level. They would have fishing line attacked uh, to like empty cans with rocks in the cans. And so the cans would rattle as an alarm. Hmm. They would have stuff rigged up to like mousetrap and shotgun shell type stuff. I mean, you didn't find that particular one very often, but every once in a while you would. So you'd have to clear it for safety and then you could go in and actually go ahead and remove the crop. This is like Goonies in Indiana Jones stuff. <clears throat> Pretty much. That's yeah. insane. And so you go in, you cut down all of these plants, and I've always been curious, what happens to them after this? Um, You bundle them up, the helicopter comes back, and you fly it all out. And back then what they did is the helicopter would drop them and drop that into trucks, and the trucks would take it to a pit and they'd bury it. They would bury it? Yep. Why not burn it or well, keep it? Well, because they don't, there's no use in order to keep it, you know, they, they, you know as far as because the, the government can't 
turn around and sell it. So that's a, a that's a, that's a, uh, you know, the that, government can't <laughs> sell the weed. Yeah, so that that's that that's out. No profit there. And uh, they can't, they quit burning it. They, they did that early on, but then you have people standing around the burn pile and that becomes a problem. Because they're um, all getting high. Because they're all getting high. Okay. And so by just burying it in the ground, letting it decompose at the time, that was, they thought was the, the easiest way. Okay. And obviously you're burying it in undisclosed locations because yeah. you don't want anyone knowing where all of this <laughs> marijuana is. Good, yep. Was there ever a mission that you went on where, you know, looking back on it, you were like, whoa, that was hairy. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of times that, I mean, we had, uh, again, most for the most part, when we'd go in, people would run and they'd rabbit from out from underneath you and that type of thing. Yeah. But there was, there was a couple of times of where word had gotten back to us that, you know, these people that were in this particular area um, had put the word out that they're going to stand their ground, they're going to fight, they're going to shoot, you know, and, um, mm. you know, bring it type mentality. And uh, so when uh, you're the first, you and a, another guy are the first ones in, um, that's uh, gets a little exciting. I, a little bit, <laughs> a little exciting. During all of this, are you still farming? Yeah, though I have because I had the tree deal, but the, the you know the, the trees were young, and so there really mm -hmm. wasn't a lot going on with the trees. And I had a guy back home kind of taking care of them for me. Okay. And so it wasn't like a, a real daily requirement. Mm -hmm. And so I could you know you know go home on a weekend or a day off and check in, and then then come back. You were kind of like, hey, you deal with the trees. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why? What happened that made you get out of? this job that you were loving so much well I, the 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 doj project is i mean it's pretty high speed low drag kind of rock star lifestyle there's a lot of uh, a lot into it and in it's really not a healthy environment for a long period of time mm -hmm. and so i you know i i did my deal and figured okay i'm gonna go back to the street and and i did i went back to my department went back to the street and and kept working there and then as time progressed, the, the politics and the animosity towards law enforcement continued to turn and administration, you know, wasn't necessarily addressing that. Mm -hmm. And it was just, and I'd been in the game long enough of where it kind of, it, it wasn't, got to the point of where it just wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, because you could do wonderful things for the community, but there was no community support. You know, they just... It was like going for them going to the grocery store. They just assume oranges come from the back of the store. Mm -hmm. They just assume that, you know, the cops will keep the streets safe and right. that type of thing. So you get out. Yep. How old were you at this time? Um, when you were, you were like, I'm done. That, uh, 40, 40, it was probably about nine, you know, nine years ago, so 42. Okay. Do you miss it? I, for the first like three or four years, I was like a dog. Every time a siren, I heard a siren in the distance, I'd be like, you know, kind of cock my head and my ear and, or, you know, roll down the window and stick right. my head out the window of the truck. And, and so, you know, but I, I, it's been long enough now where I, I think the biggest thing that I miss is the brotherhood. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the thing that I miss and I will always miss yeah. is the, the brotherhood of the guys that I worked with. Do you feel like you got out of it too early? No. You feel like it was the right time? Yeah. That's good. Because if yeah. it was the other way around, then you're just, I don't know. It's like you've never, 
you know, you're living your days going, man, I should have just, you know, two more years. Yeah, no, I, when I, when I stepped out, it was a good time to step out. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Now, did you know Jen at this time? Um, I actually met her when I was working in, in Humboldt. Jen, your wife. Yes, uh, I met my wife. Um, yes. um, I've heard this story, but how did you guys meet again? Well, we the when we at the end of the day we'd all come back to the hotel we were, we were staying at and get mm-hmm. cleaned up, and we'd go out as a group for dinner. Mm-hmm. And so this one particular evening and we, beverages and beverages, <laughs> and this one particular evening we went to an Irish pub. Okay, and. Um, one of the guys that we were working with from Humboldt County Sheriff's Office said, hey, I've got some friends that, you know, I'm going to invite to to join us. That's great. And uh, so later that evening, uh, a couple of girls walk in and uh, one of them is now my wife. Mm -hmm. Um, When you saw her, was it like, uh, who's that? Yeah, she sat down. It was a big long, we were all at this big long table and I was at one end and there was the chair open on the other end. So she sat down at the open end, okay. the other end. And I was like, huh. And so I just kind of conversed with everybody and then eventually walked down to that end of the table mm-hmm. and, you know, d- did my whole Rico Suave. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> How you do it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I don't think that was very impressive right out of the gate. And uh, but over a period of time, I mean, I was traveling between Humboldt and Del Norte and, mm-hmm. and Mendocino counties, and and but every time I was in that area, I'd I'd reach out and and you know, hey, let's you know meet you for a drink or something yeah. like that. You loved those missions in Humboldt. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> you got to see Jen. Yep. Uh, you guys were married when? Uh, 2012. Awesome. Yep. So it was. Um, I mean. It, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was pretty quick for you guys. I mean, yeah, I, I see. We met in 2009. Yeah, you know, and then when I left law enforcement from a full time spot, and that was kind of mid or to late 2010, mm-hmm. and then um, I just pretty much moved to Humboldt on a full time basis, and she mm-hmm. and I got a place, and Love and it. off we went. The rest is history. Yep. Okay, so you guys are actually traveling up to Southern Oregon kind of during this, after you get married or during the time? Yeah, about right before we got married, um, I was looking for, you know, kind of a, a timber cattle, you know, investment type thing, okay. and in some place that had a little more rainfall than where I'm from, because mm-hmm. it's very dry down there. And uh, I looked around Northern California, didn't find anything. Looked around Southern Oregon, found a place uh, just outside of Medford, mm-hmm. and uh, we got that. And so we were going back uh, from uh, the Humboldt area to uh, just outside of Medford. When did it kind of hit you guys like, hey, let's move here? That was. Um, Probably really 2013-ish. Okay. We were going back and forth. We'd come up to Oregon, go back to California, come up to Oregon, go back to California. And it got to the point of where, I mean, one time we were driving back, like, why are we going back? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, because we we love Southern Oregon. We love the people. We love the seasons and the weather. It, just everything about the Rogue Valley it was super cool. Okay. So and you guys decide to move here. Yeah. So we decide, you know what, you know what, we don't have to live where we're living mm-hmm. and I can still commute down south to check on my stuff down there. Yeah. And, um, and so we started looking for a house and, um, you know, next thing you know, we've got a vineyard in a house. <laughs> <laughs> right. You, you pick a house that, Hey, there's a vineyard here too. Yeah. It came with a vineyard and a tasting room. <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> no big deal. Um, it was really the house that you guys 
fell in love with. Yeah, and and, and you know, and, and I the real estate agent I had known from our my previous time up here, mm -hmm. and he said, "Hey, you really need to take, take a look at this place." And uh, and so I came in and we looked and looked at the vines, and and they needed a little bit of work and kind of some reconfiguration. And I was comfortable with my ag background that. I could really take the vines to the next level. It might take me a year or two, but so I was good with that. Jen, um, from an office management and kind of HR person and all of that, mm -hmm. um, you know, the tasting room kind of fell into, you know, what her forte is. And um, so we were like, yeah, well, well you know, this will be fun. <laughs> they said. <laughs> they said. This will be, this will be fun, they said. Um, this was really, though, you know, looking back at it, something that was kind of perfect for you guys if you were looking for that next big adventure yep you had the ag background i can grow grapes i can clean up this vineyard and jen's thinking and i can run this tasting room yeah yeah it really was i mean it, it at the time i mean it was you know it was very difficult when we first got here and um it's been a blood, sweat, and tears to get to where we are now. But why was it difficult? Well, I, you know, we had the the brand didn't have a really good reputation when we first got here. There was just a lot of growing pains, and because the the number of acres that we had to start with, we knew we had to expand, and so that, that you have all that expansion that mm -hmm. you have to take place, and then really having the vision that, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to go 120% and we're going to make this an ultra premium brand. And so that's going to require a winery. That's going to require a winemaker. That's going to require, you know, everything that we've done. And this, none of this existed at Two Hawk when you guys took this no, over? No, no. It was just like 14 acres of vines in the tasting room. And you said the vines were kind of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we tore out, I tore out a little bit over, over a third of the original vines in 2014 when wow. we first got here and replanted those vines in 2014. 2015, we basically doubled the acreage almost by adding a little bit over 11 uh, more acres of vines. Got more vines going in this year. Um, you built a winery yep. in record speed. Yeah, 2016, we got that in um, just in time for harvest. Yeah. And uh, really, really cool winery, too, because, you know, it's all gravity flow and separate lines for red and white because we want to, you know, we're, we're about trying to be, you know, we really want to be an ultra premium producer. And the tasting room at the time was popular, but not for the reasons that you guys wanted it to be popular. Yeah, the, the tasting room was kind of more of a bar atmosphere and live music Friday and Saturday nights. And I mean, you know, when we first got here, they had, they had kids that were, you know, parking cars like valet service out front. Wow. And, and it was, it, was, it ha didn't have anything to do with wine and a tasting room and wine quality. And so it was just kind of not the right environment for us. And the first few years were really rocky. They were. Yeah. I mean, it was tough because, I mean, you're, you're trying to, you know, resurrect and, um, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, it's a whole different path. I mean, you're, you're going to, um, you know, a different, different types of wine, different qualities of wine and uh, trying to make, you know, it all come, come around. And people who visit Two Hawk now that maybe have visited Two Hawk you know, whatever, five years ago, it's a completely different place. It is. Yeah. And, and, and I love hearing that because I mean, we, and from time to time, I mean, we'll get, you know, a post on social media or something like that. Like, wow, mm -hmm. you know, I was here four years ago mm -hmm. and I didn't leave a very good review. And right. now this is wow. You actually hear from people who say, um, 
go go visit Tuhawk again. It's going to be a completely different experience yeah, for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have friends yeah. who have said, do you go to Tuhawk? I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm down the street from them. <laughs> so I've, I've been there a few times. And they're just like, it's totally different than what it used to be. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we're, I mean, we're really, you know, it, there's, there's excited, we're excited about it, you know, and I mean, I, I, we've always had a passion for it and, but now that passion's paying off mm -hmm. and coming back because of what we're being able to do. That's amazing. And uh, Kylie, your yep. winemaker who has been on this podcast before, one of my yep. favorite interviews, <laughs> um, he just, it was a match made in heaven for you guys. Yeah, I mean, when Kylie and I first met, and I mean, it was, it was, it really was. I mean, we we think alike, and um, you know, he was looking for an opportunity to really just do what he does. Mm -hmm. And I told him, you know, I said, look, I said, I'm not a winemaker. I'm an ag guy. I'm a field guy. So that's where my expertise lays, mm -hmm. lies, and that's where I'm going to be. And I'm going to be in the vineyard. You're going to be in the winery, and we'll collaborate as needed throughout the growing season. But I'll do what I do. You do what you do. And and so really, it is a match made in heaven. Yeah, and I'm just going to say I'm a huge advocate for all of the local wineries. But you absolutely, if you have not been to Two Hawk, you have to go and visit, especially if you've gone before and you weren't crazy about it. You have to go back. Like have to go back. Yeah. And I, and I, I tell people, look, if you haven't been in, you know, three or four years or pre, you know, mm -hmm. three, really pre 2015, come check it out. I mean, come see the wines that we're producing now. Try us on. Yep, exactly. Try us on. That's what I always say when people are like, oh, I don't watch News 10. I'm like, well, try me on for a week <laughs> yeah. and see how, see how it goes. Yep. Um, so you guys are, uh, you know, I was going to say you're basic, like you were saying, the ag guy, you're in the vineyards, but you are taking on a very big role um, in the Rogue Valley with with local vintners. Yeah, it, that's the other thing. When I first got here in 2014, I'd always been in my ag, on the ag side of my career. I've always been really involved with, you know, various groups mm -hmm. and boards. And when I came here in 2014, I, I thought there was some unity missing, you know, when it, from in the wine industry. Uh and um, so I got involved with the Southern Oregon Wine Growers Association a couple of years ago. I became vice president of that. And then last year had the opportunity to join forces with a, just a band of wonderful, wonderful people here. Yeah. And, um, and we put Rogue Valley Vintners together. Mm -hmm. And you're the prez. I'm the prez, <laughs> yeah. And, and we're doing great things. I mean, we're going to be, you know, it's going to be a, a really a top-notch marketing organization for the entire Rogue Valley, you know, area it's about time yeah we have a lot to offer it. here oh we do yeah i just need to get the word out exactly uh we're gonna wrap up a little bit although you and i could probably talk for another 40 minutes or so um really quickly we just did uh oregon wine experience web series yep together that's coming out very soon and it really tells the story of you guys and how two hawk is just killing it right now mm -hmm. so look for that um Oregon Wine Experience, as you and I both love this yep. event that's in August, and the web series is a super fun, intimate look at what you guys do. Yes. So I'm excited about that. All right, Ross, very, very excited about these next three questions. My <laughs> final three, best advice you've ever been given. Can I have two? Yeah, absolutely. Of okay, course. because of course. I was thinking, I was thinking about this, and best advice is is one of them was never give up and always think. Okay. And the other one came from my granddad. Well, who gave okay. you the first piece of advice? Um, that was actually one of my training officers with Fresno County Sheriff's Office. Nice. Yep. Never give up yep. and, and think. And always think. Always think. And, 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 and just 
keep your brain working. I like it. Okay, number two. Number two came from my grandfather, and it's don't ever get too big for your britches. Oh, excellent <laughs> advice. That's and that's a good grandpa advice yeah, too. Yeah. Uh, what did yeah. he mean by that? Like, how did that come up in conversation? No matter what happens, always be humble, mm-hmm. you know, and always help people. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't get to be the guy that won't get his boots muddy or grab a shovel. Yeah, my mom has given me that advice. Stay yeah. grounded yeah. and don't get too big for your britches, Missy. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back? What would you miss the most? Probably the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think all the the people here. It's pretty unique. You know, and as far as an area and uh, really, really solid people. Right. It's um, you find that you you meet those those friends who end up becoming your support system and your family. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Okay. Final meal. Final drink. Ross okay. Allen. Okay. Final meal. So excited. And I'm gonna have to go down the list here. Well, I let's let's say first. I mean, you and I are friends. Yep. We've cooked together. Yes. I've been in your kitchen. You've been yep. in my kitchen. Yep. And it's something, cooking is something that we really share. And yes. you are a damn good cook. And you are as well. Thank you. <laughs> your lamb lollipops are the, my favorite thing on this planet. Well, thank you. They're delicious. Like, I mean, can we have them in the tasting room maybe? I mean, probably not, but. <laughs> Dang it. Yeah. All right. Sorry. This is your That's time right. to shine. Get back to your final meal. Okay. Starting off, it would be escargot with a really, really nice crusty bread to soak up the butter when I'm done. Mm, okay. Caesar salad. It's got to be a homemade dressing with anchovy. Mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. Dry aged porterhouse. Okay. Because then that way you get the New York strip and the filet. Good one. How thick are we talking? We're talking probably like inch and a half, two inches thick. Of we're talking. Course. We're talking a real steak here. Yum. And this is grilled. Oh uh, yeah, probably reverse sear. You know, maybe smoke it for a little while and then go seven hundred on each side for a couple minutes. I love this thinking. Um, baked potato with all the fixings. Mm. Yeah, because um, potatoes. But out of all the potato products, there's something about just a baked potato. Mm-hmm. Um, asparagus with hollandaise. You're not holding back. Nope. <laughs> and then uh, homemade rhubarb pie. Oh, man. Okay. To wrap that up. All right. Yep. And your beverages, sir? Um, that would probably be like an, an 86 uh, Moton Rothschild uh, and Bordeaux. And then to, fin- to, to go with the pie, probably like a 63 Fonseca port. Fantastic. You really put some thought into that. I did. <laughs> what What right now is your, and I'm deviating, I don't care. What's your favorite meal that you're cooking right now in your kitchen? Um, it, it can, you know, I, I guess one that I'm missing because the weather is barbecue. Okay. Because I don't get out to grill that much this time of year. Mm-hmm. And so um, actually like right now, probably one of the wintertime favorites is like a stuffed sweet potato. Wow. Okay. Like stuffed with what? Um, ground chicken, broccoli, kind of, you know, you cook the chicken and broccoli together, maybe, you know, get a little bit of moisture going on there mm. and then bake a sweet potato and just dump it all over the sweet potato. And oh, then you just kind of, that's kind of, it's just comfort food. Oh man. All right. Well, we're cooking together soon. Yep. So maybe I'll post some pictures of our dinner yeah. on social media for everybody. Ross Allen, super fun conversation. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play and Stitcher. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on features and then off script. Ross Allen, owner of Two Hawk Winery. Go to Two Hawk and say hi to Ross and Jen. You won't see Kylie because he's, Not a, very wi- often. he's yep. a wine nerd. Yep. He's buried in the winery. Yep. But go say hi to Ross and Jen and just try them out. Thank you, Ross. Thank you.
Thank you.